It is uh, May 25th, 2014. It's a Memorial Day weekend. Our message is called Unanimous Verdict, the Missionary. Unanimous Verdict. Boy, those are good words if you're on the right side of things. If you're on the wrong side of things, that's, that's not good words. I'm going to ask... Uh, Something that I've never done in the 21 years that I've been standing on stages preaching to people. I'm going to ask you for 68 seconds of something that is a bit of a guilty pleasure, a selfish indulgence, and uh, the young people won't understand it. Those that are much, much older than me definitely won't get it. But there are those of you that were alive and thriving in the 80s, you might get it. Could we play that video? It's another to bring a frivolous lawsuit. It's yet an entirely different thing to challenge God. As we stood there Friday, after four days of testimony, at about 4.30 in the afternoon, we stood facing down the barrel of a legal gun. What was originally 13 months of disputed payments for $900 had now grown to a $125,000 judgment, potential judgment against this church. What it would mean, according to legal counsel, was that Eric and Jennifer Stevens would be bankrupt an hour after the verdict, that life-changing ministries would cease to exist as a corporation, that the assets of life-changing ministries would now belong to another party that is frankly dedicated to predatory practices and that we would be scrambling trying to figure out how to continue the vision that God had given us. But about three and a half minutes later, about three and a half minutes later, we had a unanimous decision in our favor. Six people that never met us, six people that have never attended the church, six people that were picked precisely because they would have no sympathies towards us saw God's hand in our lives. Amen. It is Memorial Day weekend, and normally 
we would talk about veterans and veterans of foreign wars and those things. And I do, I want to honor all men who have served in the military. Could we give a hand for those men and women? But on this particular day, that I'm doing odd things, like playing a Eurythmic song from 1986, you have to notice that even the world knows you should not do certain things, right? Even the world knows there are some people you should try to avoid extorting. I mean, Eurythmics were not exactly known for their spiritual lyrics, and yet they knew that you were not supposed to extort missionaries. On an unusual Memorial Day service, I thought it would be best to talk to you about some of God's soldiers through the ages. Can you say amen for that? Before I do, amen, before I do, let's turn to Deuteronomy 17. If you don't quite get me with the Eurythmic song, that's okay. You had, I told you it was a guilty pleasure. And I'm not encouraging listening to secular music, but occasionally I do. And that's one of the songs that I happen to like. So if you should happen to hear it in a restaurant or something, relive God's glory with me. Amen? Yeah, y'all are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but I've heard you humming. You in Deuteronomy 17? I told Michael this morning when I saw him, he and I are cut from some of the same cloth. And uh, I heard David praying in a prayer meeting today. And it triggered a memory of a verse in Samuel. I told you to go to Deuteronomy, but I want to tell you about Samuel for a second. In 1 Samuel 17, in the 57th verse, and you don't have to turn there, I rarely lie when I preach. David has already killed Goliath. It is an undetermined time period later. And we don't know whether it's hours or it's days, but he had to get all the way from the battlefield back to the palace. And he is still holding Goliath's head in his hands. And Saul had a question for him. Whose son are you? I just want to tell you that sometimes when you cut the head off of a giant, you need to carry the head around for a while. It'll make people go, who's your daddy? Amen? Amen. Almost nothing in that trial went right for us. When I say almost nothing, the easiest way in the world to prove that you paid somebody on time is to show a picture of your bank statement. Ours were thrown out. They were deemed incomplete because we only showed the checks pages. If you can't show a bank statement of when something cleared, we're left with just testimony. We lost every pretrial motion that we had except one. In our home the other night, we had 15 prophecies that came forward. That's a lot. Can you all say that's a lot? 15? God moved in dramatic fashion, answered all of those. But something else that got me was there were four very specific prayer points. The only one that related to pretrial motions was that we asked the God of heaven to move the trial forward without delay. The one and only pretrial motion that we won was a denial for the delay of trial. And then we proceeded to leave, lose all of the others. My, my attorney even got fined $2,500 in the first seven minutes of the trial. And by the way, if you don't know this, when your attorney gets fined, it's actually you 
who is being fined because they represent you. And yet, listen to what God says about verdicts. Are you in Deuteronomy 17? In 17, starting in verse 8. If some cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, by the way, this is the basis for the American legal system. It speaks of capital criminal cases, civil cases, and misdemeanor cases. These are the divisions of our courtrooms. Take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the priest who are Levites and to the judge who is in office at the time. Inquire of them and they will give you a verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord God will choose. Be careful to do everything they direct you to do. I just wanted to share with you the idea that when you had a dispute in Bible times, you were supposed to leave where you were at. You remember that Jesus tells a parable about you and another person going to the judge and you need to settle with them while you're on the way? That time period from leaving your circumstances to getting to the place that God chose to put his name was so that mercy could be given. There is a time period between the infraction and the judgment so that mercy can be found. Oh, goodness, Christians, if you think about that for a while, what if you were judged the moment that you had sinned? The grace period that is between the infraction and the day of judgment is there so that a merciful arrangement can be made. But when we get to the place where God has put his name, he has representatives and they will issue a just verdict based on the presence of God. Our God is holy. All that he does is holy and is right. Men are often unholy. Men are often unjust. This time period between our present circumstances and the judgment day was a time meant for us to find mercy. But if you should happen to stand before the judge, let me ask you, saints, how many of you, excluding traffic court, have had to stand before a judge? Because... Those brothers I know that were facing years are facing devastating financial consequences or facing circumstances that would alter your life forever. When you stand before a judge, it is a fearful thing. I'm talking about you can be just in your cause, but what you begin doing in your mind is going, Lord, three years ago when Brent stepped on my toe and I growled at him, I'm really sorry for that, Lord. I, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm going to call Brent today and tell Brent I'm sorry. Lord, whether I win or don't win, when I get out of here, I, I'm going to... It makes you get your heart right. He said, well, my heart was already right. I just had a peace. People overuse that. Did Jesus have a peace in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was his cause just? <laughs> Did Jesus have a peace while he was on the cross? But was his cause just? Friends, it causes you to search your heart. And if standing before a man causes us to do that, what will it be like when we stand before the one whom the earth and sky flees from his presence? What will that be like? I want to tell you this is the time period of mercy. 
And another thing that you get from this passage, you can't help but get it, is the decision that comes out of the presence of the Lord is binding. When your life is ruled on, it is an everlasting binding decision. This day I dance with excitement because I feel heaven's approval. The Lord God has vindicated His cause. He has vindicated His servants. And I know how weak and pathetic our position was. Not because we were wrong, but because the system, the world system is stacked against the Christian. We don't lie. We don't manufacture evidence. We don't make up legal arguments solely to prevail if we believe they're not true. We won't do that. But other people do. And our God is bigger than that. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 19. We're going somewhere with this. There were moments in the trial where the judge was being asked to rule on the charges to be given a jury. Understand that if your jury is charged in a certain way, they can only render a certain verdict. In other words, if the jury charge says, did LCMF break the lease, yes or no, and that's it. Well, that answer is universally yes. That's not even in question. To which you wonder why you would waste $15,000 on our part. Their attorney fees were $50,000. If that's as simple as it was. But in this case, both parties breached the lease. And the question is really, who breached first? Those questions were almost eliminated from the jury charge. The judge sat, mouth open, finger wagging, pointing, ready to say they couldn't be included. But some saints showed up in the courtroom and were praying. And the body of Christ was praying. I got texts as far away as India and Romania and Africa, as far away as Peru. The saints were praying, and you could feel the tides turning in the courtroom. And in mid-sentence, the judge changed his mind. Talk to me about our sovereign God. The truth is that the jury knew that we were right, wanted to uphold us, and was scared that the judge was not going to let them. But in that second prayer made all the difference. Are you in Second Chronicles 19? You know, Paul said, live, with all men, live at peace with all men wherever it's possible on your part. Jesus was the prince of peace. Did he have peace with the Romans? Did he have peace with the leadership of the Jews? He said, well, God is, is just, and so the justice system is always just. Then how did we end up crucifying the king of peace? Verdicts are not always correct. The system is not always right. But God is always sovereign. Are you in Second Chronicles 19? Here comes verse 6. He told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for the Lord our God, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality, or bribery. The Lord God hates corruption. 
He hates it when injustice is allowed. He hates it when partiality is shown. He hates it when the person with the most money wins just because they have the most money. But let's understand something. He's with us in the verdict. He's with you in it. Was the verdict against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just? But he was with them in the fire, was he not? Oh, my goodness. Turn with me to Daniel 4. Say there when you get there. We're about to have fun. We're about to get excited. In Daniel 4, and starting in verse 17, this is speaking of a heavenly vision that was given to the king that was ruling the known world. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. The, the Most High is sovereign over what? The kingdoms of men. And gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. In the kingdom of God, who is exalted? The humble, the lowly. Who is over the kingdoms of men? Our God is. We say Jesus is Lord of all, but then the debate rages from what is called an Armenian view today, maybe as far as something called open theism, that is kind of like God's not sure what's going to happen because of man's free will, all the way to what could be termed a hyper-Calvinist view that says God has determined how many times you chew the gum that's in your mouth before you spit it out, and you have no choice. I've always argued for a middle position that there are solid things that he knows and calls the end from the beginning and there are other things that astonish and amaze him and the scripture says so. I have a new appreciation for just how sovereign our God is. I watched him change the mind of a judge three or four times in the trial and anyone in the room could see it. I just watched him take six jurors that I don't know their backgrounds, but I know that the opposing counsel worked very hard to eliminate anyone that was even sympathetic to Christianity. And he put everybody in the room on his side. This ought to give you hope, saints. Do you have a relative that you've been praying for, but you're bound up with the idea that he has free will and he continually chooses against God and God won't override his free will? Well... I wouldn't say he won't. The living God is able to work in the heart of a man if he can work in the nation's capitals, and he does. He is sovereign over our events. There is nothing that stands. He is so big and so great that he has issued the verdict before the trial has begun. He's called the end from the beginning. Fifteen words came forward in our house on a Monday night. I can't tell you the number of times that Natalie Aragina prophesied a psalm in our service that was speaking to my heart about the trial. Strangers kept walking up to me, not strangers, men who did not know each other prophesied the same thing, kept walking up to me and prophesying about Isaiah 41. There was encouragement everywhere, but this great man of faith still felt pretty crushed. Have you ever been there? Everybody's telling you it's going to be okay, but nobody can tell you quite enough. You know, 
I've been in terrible situations. I've had guns put to my head, knives to my throat. My family's been threatened. been in foreign countries with no way of return. I've been sick on almost every continent. But this one was special. Because if somebody pulls the trigger in a martyrdom situation, what happens to you? Where are you? You're in the presence of God. You're dancing in glory. I told the cartel before my body hits the ground, I will be in the presence of God and you will be in the inferno. Did it without hesitation. The problem with losing here is that you don't immediately go to the presence of God. You get to live with that shame. You get to watch other people take the chairs that faith bought. You get to watch other people take the sound system that somebody sacrificed to give. And I said, Lord, I don't know how to live with that kind of shame. He could have shown up at any moment and just removed that feeling so many times. He's touched me in a way that just alleviated it all and I danced and was excited and you've seen that. This time he let me feel it. Why? Why would he do that? When you get just a small revelation of the shame that Jesus carried so that you don't have to, when you get just a taste of what came upon him so that you could get a verdict in your favor, it opens your eyes in a whole new way. Friends, you were spiritually bankrupt. You were incapable of doing anything that he would consider good. Isaiah said it was filthy rags. But instead, he took that verdict for you. Is that a powerful thing? But today I wanted to focus not just on that. I wanted to focus on something else. I realize that the reason the Lord let me wrestle through that, let the Piros wrestle through that, let the Browns wrestle through that, the Richards wrestle through it, and why we fight through things like cancer, Dee Dee. God's character is being formed in us and our faith is growing. And when I began to look back and see the way in which he's dealt with the missionaries and the men of God through the centuries, it's never been any different. This American lie that if you're in God's will, life is easy, it's a bed of roses, your wealth will win the nations, is straight from the pit of hell because it requires no character to win the lottery. None. It's not a sign of God's blessing. It's not a sign of God's fruit. It's not a sign of God at all. It might even be a sign of the Antichrist. And I began to reflect on the stories that we read our children. Oh, come on, sometime you've got to go back to the basics. There's a reason that our homeschool co-op exists. There's a reason that so many people in this church love their children enough to take personal responsibility to disciple their children. And it's because we teach them about the great men and women of God that went before us. There was an American missionary. We didn't always have so many of those in the 1800s. But an American missionary named Mama Lillian. And in 1919, this woman went to Egypt. What do you think Egypt looked like in 1919? Not even Ibrahim knows. It was an amazing time of warfare. And our Egyptian brother, soon to be the Egyptian evangelist, 
knows about it because he lived there. Mama Lillian, in 1919 Egypt, began taking in children off of the street. She didn't have money for it. She didn't have the backing of some giant organization. She simply had a heart for God. And the problem is there was a revolution going on and there were soldiers everywhere. And Mama Lillian had taken into her own home 100 orphans. They had no money to buy an orphanage. They had no money backing them from anywhere. So they would go out every day to a river and make bricks in the same way that the Israelites made bricks when they were in Egypt. They stomped straw into the mud, took the mud, put it into forms, and then baked it in a brick kiln. And this single woman and her hundred orphans constructed their orphanage. The problem is when they finished the orphanage and they had baby cribs and they had everything that had been provided by faith, one night there were gunshots and cannon blasts and all of those kind of things. And they had to run in the middle of the night. She told the children, let's each one take somebody by hand, older girls, take the younger babies in your arms, and we'll go hide in the brick kiln, in the kiln that was for the bricks. Can you imagine a setting like that? Don't think of some superhero. Think of Larissa. Larissa's a superhero, but the woman was about Larissa's age when she began this work. Don't think of somebody in some far-off place that is somehow different than you. Think of the people sitting next to you. What would it be like to hear people dying, hear the gunfire, and you're responsible for a hundred kids that aren't even yours simply because you love the Lord? And so you take the kids in the middle of the night, said she had to walk, she had to crawl, Sometimes they got on their bellies to avoid detection. But they made it all the way to the brick kiln. And she began counting the children. What must have been going through her heart? She came up two babies short. Can you feel that for a second? Would you be happy you did 98% of what God asked? Would any mother in the room be satisfied if you got 98% of your children where they should be, but 2% were going to die? The older girls begged Mama Lillian not to go, but they couldn't keep her from going. That parental love that only God can give. She walked along the road, and when she heard, heard soldiers, she crawled in the bushes. But when the soldiers were so close, she got on her belly and crawled army style. And she fell. She rolled down an embankment into a ditch where she was surrounded by dead bodies. Remember, not just some random story. Real person, think of Samantha, think of Sasha, think of Rebecca, little Brooke. The soldiers heard her fall. They went to look for her. They're going to kill her. What's her crime? She loved the Lord. Do unjust things happen to godly people? 
while they're looking for her body so that they can shoot her, they trip over the dead body that is partially covering her and assume that she's just one of the dead bodies there. She made it back to her orphanage. She saved those two children. From those hundred orphans, they multiplied and became 8,000. And it said that all 8,000 could read their Bibles and all 8,000 became Christians and all 8,000 can be traced to other works today. From a woman like Mama Lillian, we learn the value of being dead. Could we look at Romans 6 together? Say there when you're there. This is Romans 6, starting in verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Mama Lillian teaches us that you save lives when you die to your life. What did you think heaven's verdict for Mama Lillian is? I bet it's unanimous. A superstar in the kingdom of God. But men would pass her by on the side of the road without giving it a second thought. Who is this fool that has given up wealth and riches, that has given up the glories of this world? for something that's unseen. Mama Lillian is actually Lillian Thrasher, just an American girl who developed a heart for God's children on the other side of the world. Can somebody say amen? Amen. As I began reflecting this morning on the struggles that have built the character of the people of God through the centuries, I have a great love for India. I've been seven times And as long as I'm alive, I will probably always go back. There's no area of India that I love any more than the region of Tamil Nadu. It's in the south of India. Used to be the city of Madras. Now it's called Chennai. There's millions of people there. And it's the hotbed of Christianity today in India. But it's the hotbed of Christianity today in India because women like Amy Carmichael an Irish missionary, went to India. And in the early 1900s, she spent 53 years of her life there, unmarried, given up all the things that girls look for, never would have her wedding day. When Amy was a little girl, much like my little girl, She loved the Lord and she prayed. And her mother had beautiful blue eyes, just like my wife's got beautiful blue eyes. And Amy wanted blue eyes, like her mama. And she prayed for them. But she had brown eyes, just like my little girl. She never understood why God didn't answer her prayer. She had seen Him answer so many prayers. Why couldn't God just change her eye color? course, blue-eyed people don't fit in very well in India, do they, Jennifer? While Amy was working in southern India, a little girl named Prina 
was dedicated to a temple. The temple had purchased her for 50 rupees. In temple worship in the early 1900s, in India included blood sacrifice. It included perverse sexual practices. It included what any normal person would consider child abuse. And Prina wondered what life must be like outside the temple walls because she was never allowed to go outside the temple walls. She watched people sacrifice to the dead. She watched people worship Kali, a wicked, demonic Indian god. She watched people worship Shiva. Have you ever seen these statues? What they must look like to a child. And Prina had tried to escape her life, but she was caught and they burned marks into her hands to remind her that she was the property of demonic powers. But Amy Carmichael was working in the same city and the rumor began to spread that there is a crazy white woman who worships a different god. And his name was Jesus. And Prina began to wonder whether or not this God, Jesus, could help her. One day, during a dancing ritual in the Hindu temple, Prina saw her chance. She made her escape in a city of millions. How on earth would she find someone to help her? Blocks away from the temple, temple guards running after her, she ran into a white woman with blue eyes. I'm sorry, brown eyes. She looked like everybody else in the crowd until she saw her white face. Amy said, what is it, little girl? What are you doing? She said, I want the God Jesus. That's all she knew. Amy put the little girl behind her. Now an angry mob is formed. Who is this foreigner, this invader, that has come here with a different message and a different God that thinks that she can steal our children dedicated to the temple? They said, stand aside. She belongs to us. She said, I will not. Stand aside. She belongs to us. I will not. She belongs to us. We paid 50 rupees for her. Amy happened to have 50 rupees in her pocket. It's about a dollar. What is the value of a life? She said, take your money and go. This one belongs to Jesus. She's taken refuge in my king, and it will not be taken from her. Amen. Prina survived into her adulthood and became a lover of Jesus Christ. But I bet if Amy had been taken to an Indian magistrate, she might not have gotten the right verdict. But in heaven, I would imagine it's unanimous. From Amy Carmichael, we learn what it is to have someone else purchase your freedom. Could you turn with me to Revelation 5 and verse 9? And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I could live with the lost, friends. I could live with the destruction of our lives' work, but I cannot live with the thought that orphans wouldn't eat in Africa. 
I cannot live with the idea that villages along the Patuka River would never have heard of Jesus. I could not live with the idea that the women in Yanipalam would not have the gospel because my king purchased their lives. And I will say that the church of the living God should stand between them and the danger and say, I will not yield. And if you've got money in your pocket, it should belong to God too. That's not the prosperity gospel, friends. That's the gospel. The reality is to save Prina's life costs something. It costs something emotionally. It costs something physically. It costs something financially. And in the name of Jesus, we ought not take it away. Oh, my goodness, the value of purchased freedom. Jesus Christ stood between you and death, and he purchased your freedom with his blood. The avenger of blood is following after you for every sin you ever committed. He's a liar, a deceiver. But you and I both know some of what he says about you is true. And Jesus knows it too. And he still puts you behind his back and said, I will not yield. This one belongs to me. They may have served in your satanic temple. They may have dedicated their lives to you. But in the name of Jesus, this one belongs to me. What makes your life important? What gives it value? At the end of the day, what legacy will be left? I say it's not measured in what you kept and stored for yourself. It's measured in what you give away for the kingdom of God. It's measured in what you pour out for the kingdom of God. It's measured in what you do for the kingdom of God. There was a moment in the trial outside the presence of the jury when opposing counsel said that Eric and Jennifer Stevens lead wildly lavish lives. <laughs> Globe-trotting. Jet-setters. I almost got thrown out of the courtroom laughing. Cassidy did get thrown out of the courtroom laughing. <laughs> wildly lavish lives. And yet I do lead a wildly lavish life. The gospel has lavished grace upon me. Somebody else purchased my freedom. I live at the cost of a man's life. And that is lavish. Oh, saints, lavish. Talk to me about George Mueller. I've been reading George Mueller's autobiography during the trial. I was drawn to it. George was from Prussia. Kingdom doesn't even exist today. And he was a scoundrel. I related to him perfectly. He was arrested three times before he was 19 years old. George delighted in his own wit. 
He often stayed up late, drank too much, and he liked to stay in other people's hotels and leave before the bill was presented. So he found himself in jail on Christmas Day. And he didn't write home because George's daddy would do what daddy should do to boys like George. So George is in his Christmas jail cell. And he takes his beating when he gets home, goes to school, doesn't change his ways. But his father wants to make something out of George, so he sends him to Holly University. And Holly University had a divinity program. And George thought, the Lutheran pastors have a pretty respectable salary. The Lutheran pastors are revered. I will be a Lutheran pastor. George owned many books, but he didn't own a Bible at the time he decided to become a divinity student. And it might not have been necessary. But George had a friend that invited him to a Bible study. George owed too many debts in the local tavern, had too many people there that were no longer impressed with his stories, so he thought, I need something to do tonight. I'll go see what this Bible study is about. When he got there, he was very surprised. They prayed as if someone was in the room speaking to them, and he had never heard that done. When they read the Bible, it was as if they were reading the very words of God and he had never heard that done. When they began to sing and worship, they weren't just singing the bar tunes. It seemed as if someone else was in the room. George saw something he had never seen that night. A man without university education, a man who did not merely read someone else's sermon, a man who shared his own thoughts about the Scripture then knelt on the ground and prayed. In George's entire life, he'd never seen somebody humble themselves before the Lord physically and get on their knees. From that moment forward, the Lord had stolen George's heart. The very first thing that he did was tell his father about it, who of course rejected it, because George didn't want to become a respectable Lutheran pastor. He wanted to become a missionary. And his father said, I didn't spend all this money to see you poor. He said, Dad, then I'm going to have to say, I'm sorry. Please keep your money. I'll depend on God to pay for my education. George goes back to university, and of course he cannot pay for his education. He cannot pay for his room and board. And there happens to be that the founder of Holly University founded an orphanage some years before and dedicated a spare room to any divinity student who needed it. So George stayed in the orphanage at Holly University, provided at someone else's graces, and the next day the divinity teacher that he had enjoyed showed up and said that the Lord had spoken to him and he had some visitors from the United States who wanted to learn English and would he be willing to teach them. They paid him eight times what the classes were worth. And now George had an education at God's 
expense. George felt called to many places. He learned Hebrew, he learned Latin, he learned German, he learned French, he learned Italian. George spoke ten languages. And of course, God sent him to England, the one language he didn't really have to learn. He didn't understand it. He didn't know why. He accepted a pastorate in a church with only 18 people. <laughs> and the first thing that he did was he eliminated the practice of cheap seats. Have you ever heard the term, we're sitting way up in the cheap seats? It originated in medieval Europe because the pastors didn't have to trust God to put money in the offering. They rented the pews. And those that were more wealthy sat on the front row. It's just the opposite now. <laughs> and those who were poor had to sit the furthest away. It was not a donation. It was a pew rental. And George, after reading the book of James, said, this offends God and I won't do it. So his 18-member congregation got cut in half on the first day. It was probably the whole front row. George began preaching everywhere he went, believing that practical acts of faith were more important than lofty theology. And God began to grow his church. When it reached 60 people, he and his wife, for the first time in their life, didn't have to worry that they were going to be able to eat again. 60 people could afford through their tithes and offerings to help them eat, but God had a new conviction in George's heart. He thought that men of God should no longer work alone. They should work in pairs. He thought that it was a terrible shame that a man of God would pastor a church by himself when Jesus sent them out two by two. So he called his friend Henry Craig and said, I believe God has a work for us in a place called Bristol. Will you come? He and Henry Craig did something that had never been seen in Europe before. They were not a senior or an associate pastor. They were co-pastors. They shared the roles in the church. It was during this time, actually, that George Mueller got married. Guys, you're going to think this is funny. George Mueller had been in love with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl in college, but she wasn't willing to go to the mission field. So he left her behind. And in England, he met a woman named Mary that his own journal says had the largest nose he had ever seen on a male or a female. <laughs> and that he did not particularly find attractive. And yet he was irresistibly drawn to her. Two children later, they spent the better part of their lives doing God's work together. When I read about George Mueller, I realized that 15 years after he had been in a prison cell, he found himself sitting in his own home at Christmas with 60 orphans sitting with he and his wife. They said, although George had never shown any propensity 
towards administration. Although he had never been a particularly good kid, from the moment he became born again, his passion for the Lord caused him to excel. The more that was given to him, the more he did with it. And he and his friend Henry Craig sparked revival all over England and started the very first orphanage that England ever had. How many of you know the book Oliver Twist? It came out after George started the first orphanage that England ever had. And that book actually was an attempt by Charles Dickens to help him finance the opening of five more, which he did. From George Mueller, I found out the value of fellowship and legacy because the way that he decided to open an orphanage as he was walking down the street and he saw a poor little girl and he wished she had a place to sleep and he remembered how he got through college. He remembered that the only way that he ever had a place to sleep was a man that went before him, made provision for those who went after him. And the night before our trial, I got to page 97 in my book and George was contemplating starting an international society of like-minded believers. The value of fellowship turns me to Philippians 2. If you do not like to read, adjust yourself. If you do not like to read the missionary stories, you need to repent. The great men of God in our time are not those who are able to grow the biggest churches and attract the largest number of adherents. The great men of God in this age are the same as every other age. They're the ones that love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. They poured out all for others. They didn't sit back and accumulate. They were in the distribution business. Church, the value of fellowship could be summed up in these words. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with His Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. George Mueller, just like John Wesley, would never have been George Mueller had it not been for Henry Craig. He understood the necessity of working with someone else. He understood the necessity of having a completely selfless ministry model. Could we learn something from men like this? Is there value in fellowship? You know who would think so? The hundreds of children that were benefited from the covenant of two men. Oh, church, what do you think heaven's verdict is with George Mueller? When we look at men like John Gibson Patton, John Gibson Patton went to an island of cannibals. He went to an island of cannibals, then called the Hebride Islands, now called Vanuatu. And when he got there, there was not one Christian. And when he left, there was not one pagan. 
John Gibson Patton went after receiving a report at 16 years old. Who's 16 in here? Raise your hand. Nobody's 16. 17. Raise your hand, Rebecca. Say, I know your name. Judah or Rebecca, hearing a report that missionaries had landed at the Hebride Islands and were killed and eaten within minutes. John Gibson Patton decided that their blood had purchased the islands and he wanted to go. Are you hearing me? These are the heroes of the faith. He was Scottish. And the thing that I remember telling our children that was the finest thing that I could think of this morning was not his great missionary efforts. It was not that he faced cannibals. Before, there had never been a freshwater well on the island. To this day, the only freshwater well in the Vanuatu Islands <clears throat> is the same one that was dug by John Gibson Patton. He set out praying and one day believed there was water under his feet. It was a problem because the only water source on the islands was controlled by a witch doctor, and the people had to worship false deities to keep their water source. He felt as if there was water under his feet, and so he began to dig. The crowd began to laugh, at his impossible task. They had never seen fresh water come out of the ground. They had only seen a stream. As they dug, the witch doctor came to mock them. The people began to mock them. Of course, until they struck water. And then everybody began to cry out that his God had caused it to rain out of the earth instead of upon it. And it is today the only fresh water source in the Vanuatu Islands. The verdict of the world is that he was crazy. The verdict of the kingdom of God is that he believed in attempting the impossible. Luke 18, 27 says, Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. <coughs> Tell me, church, do you believe that? Yes. What happens when everybody lines up and says, you should settle? What happens when people say, I know your convictions, but this is really a business decision? Our attorneys, we wanted to be a witness to them, and we were. I think we're now friends, probably forever. Our attorneys... 15-year-old daughter texted us yesterday. I think we've made it into the social hierarchy of their family. We prayed together. We prayed in tongues together, even though we're not talking about people that were spirit-filled. We never hided, hid who we are. But the truth is, it doesn't make good financial sense to go to court if it's going to cost you $15,000 and you can't win anything. But what happens when it's right? Do you make your decisions based on careful calculations of return? 
How would heaven calculate the return on investment in your life? The Bible is about the underdog. It's about men like John Gibson Patton that are crazy full of faith at 16 years old. An elder in his church said, John, you can't go. The cannibals, the cannibals, they will kill and eat you. And he said, Mr. So-and-so, I don't care much if I'm eaten by cannibals or die by some other causes and am thereby eaten by worms. I shall rise in glory. How about you? Do you believe all things are possible with God? Do you live like all things are possible with God? We haven't even gotten to men like C.T. Studd. With a name like Studd, you have to love him. But not everybody in his day did love him. <coughs> C.T. Studd was a popular professional athlete in his day. He came from a family of millionaires by their standards and ours today. It's a lot of wealth. But when he got born again, he said, I will not trade glories that fade against glories that won't. This life is no longer for me. He left the fame and popularity of being a professional athlete behind him in a single day. And then he took his family's vast fortune and he divided it up and he sent it to missionaries. Wouldn't you think that Christians would applaud a man like that? They didn't. C.T. Studd was not raised his entire life in a church. And he didn't understand the sensitivities of what he called mamby-pamby Christians. He formed an order that will cause some of you to cringe at the name. It was called the DCD, those who don't care a damn for this world. And when he was criticized for using unchristian language, he said, I am not more holy than Paul. I am not more holy than Jesus Christ, both of whom spoke of eternal damnation. I want men and women who will deliver a blow to the enemy without having concern for what others think about them. C.T. Studd died in his 70s in a canvas tent in Africa after raising up hundreds of missionaries around the world. C.T. Studd abandoned the wealth of this world for a glory that only the heavens could give him. And more than that, he proudly stood and challenged the world of his day. He said, your seminaries turn out chocolate soldiers that melt at the first sign of heat or water. He said, your biblical confectionaries don't work in the real world. We need men of grit and determination. In his writings is the first time I heard the term masculine holiness, and I believe the man exuded it. From C.T. Studd, we find out the value of abandoning the world. In C.T. Studd, we see the principles of 1 John 2 and verse 15. <clears throat> Do not love the world or anything in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eye, and the boasting of what one has and does is not from the Father, but from the world. By the way, do you see an exclusionary statement there for pastors? If 1 John 2.16 says that to you, does it not say that to men who stand in the pulpits and brag about their jets? Brag about their suits? Brag about their great wealth? The world may love them. There may be a unanimous verdict for them, but I wonder what they will hear on the day they face the heavenly judge. I would rather align myself with men like Mr. Studd who abandoned the glories of this world in the hopes of being rewarded in the age to come. We should admire men who died in tents in Africa. We should admire men who inspired others by their great battles. This brings me to Stanley Albert Dale. Stanley Albert Dale was an Aussie. Awesome. He refused to eat anything except something he called bully beef, which I believe is much like beef jerky. Till the day he died, he would not use (coughs) indoor plumbing. He thought it made people weak. Stanley Albert Dale was upset with the other missionaries that came to work with him in Indonesia because they wasted money on frivolities like canned fruit. (laughs) He was hard-nosed. He had a steel spine, but he was soft-hearted. And he loved the people where he was called. The problem is the people where he was called were cannibals. And when they first saw his lily white skin, they wondered what he tasted like. And the only reason that they didn't kill him and eat him the first time they saw him was they were impressed with his courage. He one day gave his life in a little valley in Indonesia. It took 120 arrows to bring him down. And it's said by the observers that he pulled out each one and expressed his love and forgiveness for the people who were shooting him. From Stanley Albert Dale, we learn the value of courage. Turns me to Philippians 1 and verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you admire a man who writes a statement like that? Do you admire his king enough to join him in his attitude? The reason you get into great trials, the reason great problems come upon us, is because God wants to build in you great courage to face them. Great trust in Him to face them. 
And if we had not had men that went before us and showed us how to do it, we might have an excuse. But there's a rich legacy of men, even in this room, that have lived through many battles, trusted God in their weakness, and been delivered. I'd like to tell you that this usually has to start somewhere small. A Brit named Hudson Taylor in the 1850s is a great example of how small it may start. Hudson Taylor believed he had a call to China since he was a teenager. He too left wealth and reputation behind. Hudson Taylor showed up at a med school preparing to go to China. In 1850, it took six months by sea to get to China. It was a faraway land of mystery and intrigue. Hudson Taylor in med school, living on a very small stipend from his family, was walking down the street with a half crown in his pocket. A half crown was about enough to buy food for a day. And he ran into a family who wanted prayer. And when he prayed for them, he realized God wanted him to give away his half crown. The problem is there was no smaller division of money that he could use. He couldn't give away half of what he had because there was not another coin. He couldn't give away three quarters of what he had. He couldn't save enough to buy a loaf of bread. It was a small amount of money, but to him it was all the money that he had. And of course that's why it was required. He gave away his half crown after hours of deliberation. I love his biography. He's very honest about it. He looked for any possible way to split up his half crown. He wondered whether or not they had change in the house. He wondered if there was another house he could go to and make change. The problem is if I give it away, it's all I have. And he remembered it's not all he has. He has a heavenly father. And he gave away his half crown. He went home and fell on his knees. By the way, these guys were even tougher than us. He lived next to a bordello. Young man in college. But when he got home, he fell on his knees and prayed. And the next day in the mail came a half crown. And it began his journey of faith. He started small, but small was all he had, and he began to realize that his God watched even the small details. Hudson Taylor eventually got to China. Hudson Taylor didn't stop in Shanghai. During our trial, I read Hudson Taylor's biography. And two days before our trial ended, I got to the place where Hudson Taylor had reached an entire area with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the Lord spoke to him and said, leave your missions board, have nothing to do with those organizations. I'm calling you to start an organization that will reach the other 12 provenances. Of course, he had no money when the Lord spoke it to him. When I finished his biography, I realized that not only did the Lord raise up missionaries in pairs of two to all 12 provinces, 24 missionaries in all, by the end of his life, Hudson Taylor had 800 missionaries in China and had them in every province. 
Somewhere in all of this, I began to realize it's always been the same story. It starts small and God builds our faith, but heaven is about to give us a verdict if we can wait for it. Could you read with me Hebrews 11:6? And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. If you believe, He will reward you. If you believe that He exists in your situation. From Hudson Taylor, we find the value even of a half crown's worth of faith. He started with the equivalent of a few dollars, gave it away, and spent the rest of his life reaching a nation as the first Westerner or outsider to hit all 12 provenances of China. What do you think heaven's verdict of his life is? I would like to do this for hours more, but I have time only to share with you one more missionary. But I'm going to cheat and share two at the same time. Bob Pierce and Bob Finley. We're not speaking about the 1700s. We're not speaking about the 1800s. In the year 1950, they were in Korea. Come on, somebody. That stretches to the lifetimes in this room. Maybe when some of you were in the Navy even. 1950, Korea. Is that an area that you want to be in? Bob Pierce and Bob Finley set out to go do a gospel campaign in Korea. The problem is, is it's the rainy season in Korea. They can't get an indoor venue. In the morning of the time that they're supposed to meet, 1,200 people have shown up and begun to pray because they're hungry for the gospel and they know that their neighbors don't have it. It's not a gospel-soaked land. It's a gospel-starved land. And Pierce and Finley begin to pray and ask God what to do and they believe the Lord says you are to meet in the open air where everyone can see you. The problem is it's simply not possible. It's monsoon season. No one will come to the meeting. You won't be able to have the meeting. The water will quite literally reach your waist and wash you away. It's not going to happen. After praying and reading 1 Kings, they believed that they could stop the rain. So they announced to the Koreans that they would hold an outdoor meeting and God would stop the rain. 20,000 men, women, and children came to the outdoor meeting just to see if God would stop the rain. And He did, an hour before the meeting. The meetings went on for several days and it did not rain during the meetings, not one drop. And the farmers in the land began to get angry and came and asked the two missionaries, when will it rain again? said, it will not rain until we have closed our services on Sunday. And it didn't. But by Sunday, hundreds of people had been born again. The very next week, the Communist Party came into the Korean city of Incheon, where the gospel campaign had been held. 
and killed almost every inhabitant. Learn the value of urgency from men like this. What if they had waited till a more suitable season? What if they had felt that the rain was a sign from God that they should pick the spring or they should pick some other time? These men believed in the sovereignty of their God, the necessity and urgency of their cause. And hundreds of souls were saved. No one could know that the next week the city would fall. No one could know that men would go to their grave. But some would go with smiles on their faces and others would go with burdened souls. Saints, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 7. Therefore, God again set a certain day. Say with me, a certain day. Calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Only the King of kings knew what was coming the next week. It was not a suitable season. It was not a suitable venue. And I'm sure the men didn't find it a suitable time. But heaven had a unanimous verdict that the souls were worth more than the inconvenience. Today, if you hear His voice, today, if you hear His voice, what does the voice of heaven sound like? Well, it might show up in Amy Carmichael's arms saying, someone has purchased your freedom. It might show up in John Gibson Patton when you see somebody do an impossible thing. I'd show up in a tiny act of kindness like a half crown from Hudson Taylor. Might show up in a total reversal of a man's life like C.T. Studd. Might show up in one mother who loves children that aren't hers like Mama Lillian. What does heaven's voice sound like? Well, when you've heard it, you know it. And I would wager that some of you are hearing it now, but you're trying to decide if this is your season. And I'm saying we don't know how long God will hold back the rain. This is today. This is the certain day. This is the time. You are not guaranteed next week. This is our time. Acts 17.26 says God determines the times and places men would live and work so that we would reach out and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. He has been manipulating even the rain to make sure you have the chance to hear heaven's voice. Friday afternoon, the world tried to silence these voices. It had been going on more than three years. It cost us every dime that we could scrape together and a bunch that we still haven't scraped together. But you sit here today to hear heaven's voice. The question is not, is God trying to reach you? The question is, will you be reached? 
We stand to our feet as we decide who will answer the call.